I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're about to hear an episode in the middle of a multi-part show arc. If you haven't heard the previous episodes, we suggest you skip back to part one of this topic in the feed and listen in order. All right, Paranoid Strain Orchestra, hit it. Welcome, my friends, to Nixonland. That's not just an amazing name for the strange period in our nation's history, 1969 to the middle of 74, when Richard Milhouse Nixon was the chief executive of the United States. It's also the title of the second and perhaps finest of a remarkable series of books on the rise of the modern conservative era in American politics that have been written by the estimable Rick Perlstein. If you caught the end of the Archive series replay of our very first episode a month or so back, you will have heard a small section of the lengthy interview that Rick was kind enough to conduct with me over a couple of days around the beginning of the great 2020 lockdown. As we dive into the topic of Nixon, his uniquely paranoid worldview, and its impact on not only the mainstreaming of conspiracy theories and political discourse, but also the generation of one of the greatest true story conspiracies of modern history, the Watergate break-in and cover-up, Rick will be our touchstone, leading us through the strange times and even stranger mind of this remarkable, deeply odd man. To get us started, let's hear Rick talk us through how he came to see the 1960s, and more specifically, the conservative movement, as his particular niche as a historian. I've told the the story many times in various interviews about how I was so obsessed with the 60s when I was kind of a teenager that I would misspent all my time in this giant ramshackle used book warehouse in Milwaukee called the Renaissance Bookstore, looking for strange texts from the 1960s, you know, John Birch Society stuff, but also, you know, Black Panther stuff that spelled America with a KKK. And as I reflected more about that, I realized that it goes back even before that. I remember waking up early on Sunday mornings when I was a kid and being absolutely riveted by TV preachers, you know, these kind of crazy, southern, hyper-emotional, faith healer types. What really galvanized me, I think, was the extreme exoticism of these creatures who I shared a country with. You know, it's, it's almost like the exoticism you could experience going to a very remote land. <laughs> but here they are, fellow Americans. That, in addition to kind of arguing my liberal views with my parents' conservative views, views, you know, you kind of throw that into a gumbo. And I've always been obsessed with the 60s. And when I became uh, interested in the rise of conservatism in my own time, and then, you know, middle of the 1990s with people like Newt Gingrich, found myself kind of converging on the Goldwater campaign as the place where uh, all this started, all this started coming together. This is like around the time when I was thinking about writing a history book when I was a magazine editor in New York. And so I just kind of started and made it my work. The editor of my first book, 
told me that he finds people are often drawn to the time right before they were born, kind of the the period that kind of shaped the world that they were born into. And I think that's certainly true with me. I was born in 1969. And as I became fascinated with the 1960s, I asked my parents, who you know had a small business in Milwaukee, you know, to tell me about the 60s. What was it like? And the story they told me is uh, about the time there were riots in Milwaukee, race riots in 1967. So they couldn't go into downtown. None of their friends could to work to with the, you know, go to their stores and things like that. So they had a pool party because they already had a pool, right? So I kind of became interested in that kind of 1960s experience. That was definitely kind of Richard Nixon's people, you know, the people who stayed safe behind their you know white picket fences. Getting to the heart of our topic, as is usually the case when trying to come to grips with a figure as complex as Nixon, we have to start before his ascendancy to understand how dramatically different the political world looked at the beginning of the 60s than it did by the time Nixon won the presidency in 68. You didn't really think he would just start talking about Nixon without doing an overly detailed backstory, did you? Do you even know what show you're listening to? In his excellent first book, Before the Storm, Perlstein sketches the outlines of what at mid-century had come to be seen as the great American liberal consensus. That is, at that time, there was general agreement among intellectuals and what has come to be known as the chattering classes that, in a sense, America had solved all of the big problems of governing. Everyone, or at least everyone who was seen to matter, a point that will become very important in a moment. Yes, everyone who mattered agreed that the U.S. would, in keeping with its role as the dominant power in the free world, use its great economic might to build a gradually more just and equitable society, with Republicans and Democrats working together to construct government programs that would eventually defeat all of the problems that have bedeviled mankind since the dawn of time. Poverty, disease, racism. You remember, the stuff that we don't deal with anymore because they did such a great job eliminating them. Thanks, guys. And it's important to remember, this was not just some weird period where left-wing eggheads hypnotized the traditionally middle-of-the-road American voting public and forced them to support broadly redistributive policies. This was a belief that was held by groups we would normally consider natural allies of an anti-welfare state conservatism, like big business and most devoutly religious people. Why? Rick fills us in. It was a time in the late 1950s when... Barry Goldwater kind of started emerging really as a national figure and began to kind of attract the attention of people who wanted to draft a conservative for president in 1960 when Americans really thought that they had it all figured out. A famous example of this in the intellectual world was a book called The End of Ideology by Daniel Bell that came out around this time. And the idea was all the big fights about kind of distribution of resources that had vexed societies for thousands of years kind of had been solved by America and by the West. And the only political debates were around the margins. The people whose job it was to set the terms of reality believed that America was in the middle of this orderly, rational transition to kind of a welfare capitalist society in which job security and health insurance were part of what every American accepted as the government's role, that we didn't have the kind of Marxism or fascism that had so blotted, you know, the history of the world America came from, from Europe. You had people like Walter Lippmann, who was the kind of towering pundit of the day, 
In fact, the guy for which the word pundit was invented by Time magazine saying that America was more united and at peace with itself than at any time in its history. And this was the spring of 1963 when he said this. So it's really on the cusp of this profound period of disorder that we call the 60s. In case you don't recall why the spring of 1963 was a particularly bad time to be declaring the country to be united and at peace with itself, May we please direct you to the Assassinations JFK edition episode in the podcast feed. Now, if Rick is correct, and, spoiler alert, he is, then how exactly did the parts of America that were neither united nor at peace with the great liberal consensus come to make themselves felt as early as the 1964 presidential election? If you're not familiar, in that election, conservatives managed to cause the Republican Party, which at the time was completely dominated by people whose views on social programs would today make them fairly liberal Democrats, to nominate a young, handsome, very conservative senator from Arizona, Barry Goldwater, whose primary claim to fame was being so utterly out of step with the consensus that he was kind of a figure of wonder, endlessly profiled by the mainstream press, like a black swan, or more appropriately, a white elephant. What happened, Rick? One of the things that all these pundits and experts didn't quite grasp was that all these parts of American life that they considered kind of vestiges of a past that was fast receding, i.e. things like Southern segregationism, people who own businesses who believed that their prerogative to run their businesses as they saw fit without government interference, were not really vanquished, right? Uh, they just didn't have many voices in the Northeastern establishment where this stuff was getting written and thought. That sort of condescension towards those very people was, in a sense, mobilizing of them. There were several things that came together in the middle of the 1950s that uh, made folks like this realize that they had to organize themselves politically. One, of course, was something like Brown versus the Board of Education, which galvanized a movement for massive resistance in the South that made a mockery of the idea that America was united and at peace with itself. People were being terrorized. School systems were shutting down rather than integrate in places like Virginia, just over the border from Washington, D.C. Basically, the great post-war accord between labor and management that reached this apotheosis with the contract between General Motors and the United Auto Workers that created guaranteed cost of living adjustments, that created health insurance for all the workers, that created unemployment insurance in times of layoff, which was seen as this inevitable piece of progress by the people who judged these things, was seen by the kind of people who didn't have the sort of resources of a General Motors, people who are smaller manufacturers in the Midwest and in the Southwest and the South, as an existential threat to their way of life. And uh, these were the people who kind of came together in coalition around a radio personality that I write about in great detail named Clarence Mannion, who had been the dean of the law school at Notre Dame and a right-wing Catholic. Here's a little taste of that radio host, Clarence Mannion, offering some very thoughtful words on how terrible this whole modern push for equality among races and sexes is. All the king's horses and all the king's laws cannot possibly make human nature identical. God has created them equal in his sight, and because we have followed this commandment of God, we have made them equal before the law. And in every other way, human nature has been and will continue to be unequal. Unequal in stature, unequal in intellect, 
unequal in incentive, unequal in achievement. And when you stop to realize this all-pervasive inequality that God has stamped upon each one of his personalities on earth, how absurd it is to talk about inequalities of complexion, inequalities of economic condition, inequalities that arise out of certain geographical locations. These inequalities are absurd because, of course, men and women are unequal in all respects. And they began thinking about how they could take either of the parties back, really. Their first idea was to draft Orville Faubus, the segregationist governor of Arkansas, who had become a hero to conservatives by fighting against the integration of Little Rock Central High, to draft him for president and get conservatives in the Democratic Party from the South and conservatives from the Republican Party in the North to bolt from their parties and form this third party which would have been this kind of Rube Goldberg contraption that never would have worked. And then they realized that there was this guy in Arizona, a senator who was elected in 1952 named Barry Goldwater, who thought exactly as they did and was extremely handsome and charismatic and so jet planes. And they realized that he was a wonderful vessel for this vision that they had. And they basically persuaded him to stay out of the way as they drafted a ghostwritten book under his name called Conscience of a Conservative. That became this shocking surprise hit, sold like, you know, a million copies, even though they expected it to basically be privately distributed by rich factory owners. That was a very strange kind of black swan occurrence. A lot of the people who were buying and embracing this book were college students who thought that the kind of liberal consensus that they had come to inherit was boring, existentially desiccating in the same way that a couple of years later, People on the new left would begin to think of the new liberal consensus. Conservatism was not seen as something that was the preserve of boring old men, but maybe this kind of rising wave, this exciting new thing. And that's a trope that kind of appears over and over again in the history of conservatism that, wow, isn't this this interesting paradox that young people are embracing conservatism? But basically, the kind of people who were in despair in the Republican Party that the people running the party who had drafted Dwight D. Eisenhower for president were accepting the terms of the New Deal as the parameters of American politics, as indeed Dwight Eisenhower had. He said that people who opposed things like Social Security and unemployment insurance were crazy. They began to organize. They began to realize that the Republican Party, its institutions, were very weak. That it had become kind of a cult of personality around this very consensus-building figure, Dwight Eisenhower. And if they showed up at the war meetings and the precinct meetings and the county meetings, they could be the ones who controlled the Republican Party. And they did this very stealthily. They mastered the rules. And kind of by the time the Republican establishment woke up in the middle of 1964, they pretty much had the whole thing wired behind Barry Goldwater, who emerged as the Republican nominee, even though most self-described Republicans didn't agree with many of his positions. Mannion's obsessions meshed nicely with another group of conspiracist reactionaries we covered in our recently archive-featured first episode, Robert Welch's John Birch Society. Both were absolutely convinced that the whole liberal consensus was just creeping communism, a problem that had obsessed the extreme right for decades, but especially since public revulsion had shut down the communist witch hunts of the 50s, which had been headed up by the legendary drunk Senator Joseph McCarthy. Well, so Mannion was a bircher. 
And a lot of the people associated with him, these kind of Midwest factory owners, were among the founders of the John Birch Society. One of the guys who went to the original John Birch Society was a guy named Charles Koch. He had a petroleum equipment company in Wichita, Kansas, and he loved the idea that the only reason America had turned from its birthright, which was small government, kind of local control of institutions, was the fact, as he believed it, that communists had infiltrated the American government. You know, this is all very continuous with the second Red Scare after World War II and McCarthy, which, you know, liberals had thought they had defeated when McCarthy had, you know, soiled himself in the army investigation. It was censured by the Senate in 1954, and then he died in 1957. But for a lot of these guys, he was a hero. Charles Koch wrote a little pamphlet called A Businessman Looks at Politics, and it took a lot of signal right-wing obsessions. You can hear in uh, Edmund Burke's book on the French Revolution, a terror about inflation, that when a, a currency becomes inflated, that's the way kind of the masses take over power from the elites. Charles Koch had the same fear as a lot of conservatives did. And the conspiracy theory that he spun in A Businessman Looks at Communism was that Harry Dexter White, who was a Treasury Department official, was a secret communist, and he had secretly stolen the plates to produce dollar bills, sent them to the Soviet Union, where the Soviet Union circulated masses of greenbacks into the American economy to create an inflation that would weaken and destroy the will of American society from within. Now, of course, we know Charles Koch's name because his sons— the Koch brothers had this enormous role using dark money to try and move the Republican Party to the right in the 90s and the 2000s. But these were the kind of guys that started the John Birch Society, which was this organization whose leader, Robert Welch, was about as nutty in his conspiracy theories as you can believe. And the way he organized his thinking was that it wasn't conceivable that God's chosen nation, the United States of America, could possibly relinquish control of all these nations in Europe, like Poland and Latvia and all the rest, or China, were it not for these secret communist United States government. The idea that the Soviet Union had expended the lives of 20 million people defeating Hitler, so their armies were already there in Poland, and you didn't need secret communists for the Soviet Union to have a lot of control over what was happening in Poland was inconceivable to them. That was where the conspiracy theory was. He started this organization with this furious, insane energy. By 1961, managed to recruit tens of thousands of Americans who were basically willing to do anything at this guy's command. And people started noticing that all of the John Burke Society's obsessions were showing up in letters pages in newspapers that people were showing up at PTA meetings and trying to take over local PTA to make sure that, you know, the liberal secular humanists didn't control the education system. Consensus Liberal America and its media organs kind of woke up to the John Burke Society very early in 1961 when John F. Kennedy was elected, because just like when Barack Obama was elected in 2008 and became president in 2009, it turned out that there were millions of Americans who just didn't consider a liberal a legitimate governing partner in the United States. Now, of course, the long-term problem for a political movement that's built almost completely on the unshakable determination that communists were rife in the State Department, or that anything led by anyone to the left of Clarence Mannion was just a front for the international communist conspiracy, 
Which is to say, for the Birchers, virtually all major organizations in mainstream turn-of-the-century American life. Indeed. But the problem for this movement was, of course, that if it ever stopped the subversives who were destroying America, then it would destroy its own reason for existing. Or, as Perlstein put it in his first book, Politically, the philosophy lost when it won. If you remove the fear of subversion by catching subversives, you ended the fear that had brought you to power in the first place. Fortunately, the movement wasn't simply built on political opposition to communism, which would dissipate if you caught all of the mostly imaginary communists. It was also firmly founded on conspiracy-minded paranoia in general, to continue that quote. Although, of course, you could never catch all the subversives, for the conspiracy was a bottomless murk, a hall of mirrors that grew greater the more it was flushed out. One of the characteristics of right-wing thinking in general is that you kind of already know the answer. The intellectual process becomes a search for evidence that you know confirms what you already know. If there isn't evidence, well, that just only proves that the conspiracy is even more cunning than you thought because they've managed to hide their hand. But back to Goldwater. Here's a little clip from the Republican nominating convention of 1964. I would remind you that extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. And let me remind you also that moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. Now, given the depths to which our current political moment has sunk rhetorically... Not that we're thinking of any politicians in particular... Well, I do think there's blame, yes. I think there's blame on both sides. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. See this guy, oh, I don't know what I said. Ah, oh, I don't remember. Grab him by the pussy. <laughs> I can do anything. You can see there was blood coming out of her eyes, blood coming out of her wherever. He's a war hero because he was captured. You may be shocked to learn that Goldwater's statement defending extremism in the defense of liberty was considered way beyond the pale for the mid-60s voting public, a group for whom consensus was so strongly felt that apparently any extreme view was an outrageous breach of decorum, even an avowedly pro-freedom message. We're pretty sure that Goldwater's sentiment would be too banal to even make it into a Toby Keith lyric at this point. Now, Goldwater held a bunch of positions that no modern-day politician would touch with a 10-foot pole, even including Mr. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? For example, AUH2O was staunchly against civil rights legislation, like the same civil rights legislation that was absolutely required to even begin enforcing basic human rights for black people in the South at the time. Yeesh. Unlike most of the racist yahoos who also held this position, Goldwater was apparently genuine in opposing the legislation for what he thought of as deeply held non-racist convictions. Specifically, he thought that imposing civil rights on recalcitrant southern states was an unconstitutional arrogation of power to the federal government. A version of the states' rights argument we hear to this day when the government tries to enforce civil rights on a resistant local population. And I'm sure the fact that Goldwater had non-racist reasons for opposing this legislation was super comforting to African-Americans watching their avowedly racist neighbors in the South flock to Goldwater's campaign in 1964. Which gets precisely to the key problem for the Goldwater campaign. The senator himself, however extreme his views, was not a lunatic, racist, or conspiracy theorist. But his entire insurgent campaign was powered largely by forces like Clarence's Mannionites and Robert Welch's John Birchers, who most definitely were composed of racist, lunatic conspiracists of the purest race serene. 
The issue then was how to get all of the loons to exert their considerable manic energy on the task of supporting their conservative hero, while at the same time keeping them at a far enough remove from the senator that he wouldn't get flecks of crazy all over him. In fact, as Rick discusses, all respectable right-wing organizations that were working during this period were faced with the problem of what exactly to do with the conspiracist cranks in their movement, including the magazine that came to embody the mainstream success of conservatism, National Review. Well, this is it's, it's very interesting to look at the relationship between what's generally been called kind of the respectable right and the ultra-conservatives, because right around the time the John Burke Society and the people around it are getting their thing together. You also have William F. Buckley and his people getting their thing together and creating National Review. And National Review is this kind of New York-based organization, kind of in the belly of the establishment beast, that always defined itself as creating a conservatism that, as William F. Buckley put it, a politician can embrace without, quote, fear of embarrassment. Right. So the idea that there are lots of crazy people on the right and that we got to keep them out of our magazine was there kind of from the start. But, you know, the policies that their various ways of thinking led them to endorse were the same. It was very small government you know, against uh, the welfare state. It got a little tricky and complicated in foreign policy because a lot of the far right ultra conservatives came from a kind of isolationist perspective that a lot of the so-called mainstream right had rejected in favor of kind of a strong military presence that projected American power all over the world. But basically, these guys could get along in terms of policy. But if William F. Buckley's goal was to basically create a conservative politics that you could display to people like the New York Times and not have them cringe in horror, people like Robert Welch and the John Burke Society were a hindrance. Right now, actually, uh, I went to the American Historical Association convention this past January, and there's a lot of interesting work being done demonstrating that this line was a lot more permeable than people had realized, again, between the conspiracist ultra-right and the kind of respectable William F. Buckley writes, but it was seen very palpably by the people who were kind of running the Goldwater movement that if this guy could be dismissed as a conspiracist extremist, they couldn't possibly make it as a mainstream political movement. So it's all kinds of fascinating stuff you can see in the, the papers of the people involved in the Goldwater movement, trying to basically put their fingers in all these dikes. You know, some group in Arizona that's called, calling itself whatever, Americans for Goldwater or something like that, or Patriots for Goldwater, that believes that the Soviet Union has a plan to blow up all 50 state capitals on the same day. Right. What are you going to do with these guys? Well, you know, the extremists are the ones who knock on doors on Election Day and are so fanatical and they're great to have in a campaign in making the president in 1964. They're called uh, the firebugs. They carry their light everywhere. So there's this very complicated dance in which uh, it has been characteristic of the right a lot more than people appreciated until recently, in which the extremists and the people who are kind of the conservatives you can take home to mother have had uh, a very kind of complicated arm's length relationship, but, you know, often pursued on the part of the so-called mainstream with a lot of cynicism. For example, uh, I think it was Ronald Reagan or maybe it was one of his aides. There was a guy named John Russolo, who's a congressman, who was actually the publicist for the John Burke Society. He was one of the most important members of John Burke Society. And when Barry Goldwater ran for governor, he kind of had to distance himself 
publicly from the John Birch Society. He said, just because they support me doesn't mean they support them. But he told a friend once, John Russolo is great because he'll say he supports me if we want him to, or he can say he doesn't support me if we want him to. In other words, you know, kind of we can use him, but he's sophisticated enough to maintain a plausible deniability if that's what we want from him. So it's a, a very interesting, almost quantum physics-like <laughs> relationship, like Schrodinger's wingnut. So I know we promised to talk about Nixon here, and in just a moment we're going to, but it was important for our purposes to understand how the conservative movement in the 60s was faced on the one hand with a mainstream view that it was dead, or at least dying, and on the other with the fact that there was an unbelievably dedicated hardcore faction who were ready and willing to give their all for conservative causes, but that many of those folks believed completely insane conspiracist bullshit. Of course, Goldwater beat the odds to win the nomination in 64 and then went on to a historic loss against the incumbent Democrat, Lyndon B. Johnson. How big was this electoral creaming? Johnson won 61% of the vote, the highest percentage won by a presidential candidate since 1820. For comparison purposes, Obama's victory in 2008, which was considered a strong win, was carried with 53% of the vote. It didn't hurt that Johnson used the controversy over Goldwater's extremism in the Defense of Liberty quote we heard a little earlier to unleash one of the most devastatingly effective and politically dirty commercials ever aired. The infamous Daisy commercial begins with a little girl adorably miscounting flower petals, then her image suddenly freezes, the audio switches to an ominous countdown, and the whole thing culminates in a mushroom cloud. with a solemn Johnson starkly outlining the choices facing the United States in its then-ongoing Cold War with the Soviet Union. The obvious message? Choosing Goldwater's extremism is a highway to nuclear war. The ad was only aired once, but it was so controversial that it was endlessly replayed in news reports that reported on the controversy, a dirty trick that political advertisers follow to this very day. Consider, for example, the extent of the free media placement, the comparatively small anti-Trump Lincoln project has received in the 2020 election by creating short pointed ads that create news coverage precisely because they were designed to gin up that very controversy. Obviously, in the wake of the 64 election, the conventional wisdom in New York and Washington was that this was finally the last gasp of reactionary conservatism. But then again, these same folks had already long ago predicted the demise of the political career of one Richard M. Nixon. And they were wrong about that, too. Nixon was born in very modest circumstances in Yorba Linda, California, the son of a stubborn, distant father and an extremely religious mother. As Pearlstein's masterpiece Nixonland illustrates, between his mother's inability to recover from the death of one of his brothers when he was 12 and his father's cheapness, rigidity, and lack of warmth, the future president was probably doomed to have some sort of personality issues to deal with. And ooh, Lord, did he have personality issues. True enough, but in addition to a significant streak of paranoia, issues with rage, a near-total inability to connect to other human beings, and an almost comprehensive lack of moral fiber, he was also in many ways an extraordinary and capable person. He had a voracious intelligence, a preternatural ability to sense the winds of political change and bend them to his will, 
and a genuine vision for building a lasting global peace between nations. Although for every visit to China that marks him as a statesman of the first order, there's an illegal bombing of Cambodia that marks him as a war criminal. But perhaps the signal element of Nixon's character was resentment. As Pearlstein puts it in Nixonland, Richard Nixon was a serial collector of resentments. He raged for what he could not have or control. Having grown up friendless and emotionally stunted, Pearlstein notes that the first time that Nixon's unique gifts for detecting and channeling his own resentments and the resentments of others was when he began attending Whittier College. The student body was run, socially, by a circle of swells who called themselves the Franklins, and the remainder of the student body, a historian noted, seemed resigned to its exclusion. So this most unfraternal of youth organized the remnant into a fraternity of his own. Franklin's were well-rounded, graceful, moved smoothly, talked slickly. Nixon's new club, the Orthogonians, was for the strivers, those not to the manner born, the commuter students, like him. He persuaded his fellows that reveling in one's unpolished was a nobility of its own. The Orthogonians' base was among Whittier's athletes, on the surface, jocks seemed natural Franklins, the big men on campus. But Nixon always had a gift for looking under social surfaces to see and exploit the subterranean truths that roiled underneath. It was an eminently Nixonian insight that on every sports team there are only a couple of stars, and that if you want to win the loyalty of the team for yourself, the surest, if least glamorous, strategy is to concentrate on the non-spectacular, silent majority. Nixon beat a Franklin for student body president. Looking back later, acquaintances marveled at the feet of this awkward, skinny kid the yearbook called a rather quiet chap about campus, dour and brooding, who couldn't even win a girlfriend, who attracted enemies, who seemed, a schoolmate recalled, the man least likely to succeed in politics. They hadn't learned what Nixon was learning. Being hated by the right people was no impediment to political success. The unpolished, after all, were everywhere in the majority. One thing that makes kind of Richard Nixon Richard Nixon is a certain kind of class resentment. Now, the word class is very complicated because the sort of people who are kind of in Richard Nixon's subaltern class that believe themselves to be oppressed are often quite affluent. Adelaide Stevenson joked that when Dwight Eisenhower became president, he says the New Dealers have been replaced by the car dealers. This idea that urban cosmopolitan sophisticates from the Northeast are oppressing more traditionalist elites in the middle of the country or the West is kind of built into a lot of conservative thinking. And Richard Nixon is kind of a pure product of these kinds of resentments. He was this kid who always felt like he was looked down upon by the cool kids, so much so that he kind of creates his own social club in college called the Orthogonians, in which he kind of unites the uncool kids into a block that you know, kind of defeats the cool kids for the running the school. You know, they become the class presidents and all that. And that's really the template that he takes into his political career. He runs in 1946 against this guy named Jerry Voorhees, who's this New Deal liberal. He depicts him as basically this Eastern sophisticated snob who's looking down at the hardworking, striving suburbanites of California and manages to beat him in an upset. When he wins his Senate seat in uh, 1950, against Helen Gahagan Douglas, he makes much of the fact that Helen Gahagan Douglas's husband was this 
prominent Hollywood actor, kind of like the Hollywood elite argument of the day. And he really makes his name in Congress as a member of the House on American Activities Committee, taking on the ultimate Eastern cosmopolitan swell of the day, Alger Hiss, whose manners are impeccable, whose suits are perfect, whose English is practically Oxfordian in its sophistication. And he's saying these are the type of people who have made their common cause with the Soviet Union and infiltrated our government. Ah, yes, Alger Hiss. Before we let Rick continue, we think it's important to discuss this, which was the first moment after his election to Congress that the crafty, resentful Nixon rode the wave of a situation that truly gave him a name in national politics. It happened during the early days of the post-World War II Red Scare. That's the fear that the government had been infiltrated by communist spies and saboteurs working for the Kremlin. Hiss was a government official who was denounced by a former communist named Whitaker Chambers. It's still not entirely clear whether or not Hiss was guilty. He served several years for perjury related to the case, but post-Soviet record searches indicates he didn't have a relationship with the KGB. Regardless, Nixon saw in the cultured, tailored, well-bred Hiss a perfect stalking horse for his own class resentments as well as the resentments of those he would eventually characterize as his silent majority. He gained a national profile through his withering and dogged pursuit of Hiss as a member of the House Un-American Activities Committee. The same committee that would make and then destroy the career of the aforementioned Joseph McCarthy. Yep, that's the one. Anyway, back to Rick, already in progress. The Hiss Chambers confrontation in which this loudish former communist Whitaker Chambers is really looked upon by the cultural elites as an embarrassment, someone who couldn't possibly have had anything to do with their hero, Alger Hiss, this you know product of Harvard, this person who was mentored by Felix Frankfurter. It was almost a clash of cultural absolutes. And Nixon kind of drafts himself as the hero of the people who feel put upon by Alger Hiss and their class. And forevermore, he's absolutely decided Eastern cosmopolitan swells who you know wouldn't let him get a job on Wall Street after he graduated from this kind of second tier law school had it in for him for the rest of his life. I mean, if you listen to the Nixon tapes, the White House tapes, he's obsessed with the idea that the liberals are out to get him because he took down Alger Hiss. He tells all his aides that the way that they're going to defeat Ellsberg and this conspiracy to leak all the government secrets is the same way that he took down Alger Hiss in 1947. His language around this is really indistinguishable from the kind of thing you'd see from the John Birch Society. Although he's such a disciplined person and he has such a good grasp of what it takes to make it politically, that this is the kind of stuff you'll only hear from Richard Nixon behind closed doors. He would never say this like like Donald Trump would in a speech. Rick jumped us forward in time to the Watergate era there, which we'll be hitting on next time. But there's another moment in the early career of Nixon that we want to focus on, after he's chosen by then-candidate Dwight Eisenhower to run as vice president in 1952. We'll let Rick introduce the situation. He was extremely disciplined in basically choosing his enemies, except when he wasn't, of course. A, a perfect example is the famous you know, checker speech, right? There's this newspaper article suggesting that he's kind of on the take from rich supporters. Eisenhower in 1952, he's, you know, Eisenhower's running mate. It was come out of nowhere. He's, you know, been a senator for two years, one year, actually. And he's chosen as Eisenhower's running mate. And Eisenhower's running on this anti-corruption platform. And basically, he tells Nixon he's going to go on TV. And the implication is he's going to go on TV and resign. 
And instead, Richard Nixon gives this classic performance in which he says that he's just this kind of poor, struggling, middle-class man who just, you know, barely getting by. And they're going after me just like they want to go after you. And that the real snobs and swells of the people in the Democratic Party who are the party of, you know, the cultural aristocrats like Adlai Stevenson. And yet at the same time, he kind of lets slip this kind of very nice kind of rapier kind of cut against Eisenhower, in which he basically implies that he has some dirt about Eisenhower that he drop unless they keep him on the ticket, right? I should say this, that Pat doesn't have a mink coat, but she does have a respectable Republican cloth coat. And I always tell her that she'd look good in anything. One other thing I probably should tell you, because if I don't, they'll probably be saying this about me too, we did get something, a gift, after the election. A man down in Texas heard Pat in the radio mention the fact that our two youngsters would like to have a dog. And believe it or not, the day before we left on this campaign trip, we got a message from the Union Station in Baltimore saying they had a package for us. We went down to get it. You know what it was? It was a little Cocker Spaniel dog in a crate that he'd sent all the way from Texas. Black and white, spotted. And our little girl, Tricia, the six-year-old, named it Checkers. And you know, the kids, like all kids, love the dog. And I just want to say this right now, that regardless of what they say about it, we're going to keep it. So, you know, he's a he's just a master tactician in that way. And he's always kind of keeping his powder dry. But in his heart of hearts, he really thinks that people who really run the society are out to get people like him. So Nixon schemes his way into staying on the Republican ticket, serves as vice president through both terms of Eisenhower's administration. Though the old general was widely known to have a distaste for his veep, a slight that you can bet resentment Milhouse Nixon would ruminate about for a long time. True, but the real lifelong focal point of Nixon's resentment was about to coalesce around the family that would obsess him to the end of his days. Let the word go forth from this time and place. Maud Simpson is a shoplifter. I'm pretty sure that was Mayor Quimby, but we get it. The Kennedys. Exactly. In 1960, in one of the closest elections in modern American history, the handsome scion of one of the nation's most patrician East Coast families squeaked a win over the hardscrabble son of Yorba Linda. Everybody knows about the famous Kennedy-Nixon debates. Where radio listeners thought Nixon won, while TV viewers just wanted to bathe in the radiance of Jack's steely gaze and vote him to whatever office he wanted if they could only wear his varsity jacket. It also didn't help that there are more than credible reports of voter fraud in Chicago and Texas, and that had Nixon won Illinois and Texas, that would have handed him the presidency. It is worth noting that for all of his conspiracist tendencies, resentment, and will to win, Nixon conceded before investigations of these accusations were complete, seeking to avoid a constitutional crisis. Something that we hope, but rather doubt, certain current presidents would be willing to do in a similar situation. Then, adding insult to injury, when Nixon decided to try instead for the highest executive job in California, running against incumbent Democrat Pat Brown in the 1962 gubernatorial election, he lost that one too. Which led to this famous moment, another indelible Nixon quote, and an assurance from the man himself that his political career was over. For 16 years, ever since the Hiss case, you've had a lot of fun. Uh... A lot of fun. You, you, you've, you've had an opportunity to, uh, 
to attack me, and I think I've given as good as I've taken. I leave you gentlemen now. Uh, I want you to know, just think how much you're going to be missing. You don't have Nixon to kick around anymore. But of course, as we know, it had only gotten started. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.